linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And how are you doing today? I was just about to ask how your summertime is going, but then I remembered that there are a whole lot of saloners who happen to be living in the southern hemisphere and who are having winter thoughts right now. And as simple a concept as that is, uh, it's still kind of hard for me to get my head around. I guess I should be telling the dope fiend and our European friends to stay cool, but that BB and Hermit Girl and the rest of our fellow saloners who are living south of the equator should stay warm. It kind of reminds me of that old joke about the guy with one foot in a bucket of boiling water and the other foot in a bucket of ice water. And when someone asked him how it felt, he said, well, on average, it's quite comfortable. And so here in uh, average Southern California, I want you to know that it's uh, quite comfortable here right now. Okay, that'll be the last of the corny jokes today. And two wonderful folks who aren't joking about helping to offset some of the expenses here in the salon are Kyle N. and John F. And if I'm not mistaken, they uh, both have been hanging around with us here in the salon for quite a while now. So thanks for being here, Kyle and John, and uh, thanks again for supporting these podcasts. Speaking of which, uh, let's get right into today's program and... As you know, this will be the third program in which we're hearing the recording of a workshop that Terrence McKenna gave sometime around the 5th, 6th, and 7th of November in uh, 1988, way back when Ronald Reagan was still the U.S. president. And uh, by the way, if you don't want to uh, wait for me to finish playing this entire set of tapes, you can download them from our psychedelicsalon.org website, where fellow saloner Miguel Fernandez posted a link to a zip file that not only contains this workshop, but uh, also the uh, talk that Terrence gave in Palenque in 1999. But if you want to hear that talk, you can uh, also find it as podcast number two in this series. So, thanks again to Miguel. Uh, we are going to hear what, for me, is a brand new McKenna workshop. And while we often hear some familiar themes in his presentations... I've found that uh, each time I hear some of these concepts explained in a little different way that I wind up with uh, a somewhat better grasp of his ideas. Now, if you've been uh, keeping up with uh, which tapes in the series I've been playing, today's podcast uh, includes tape 3B and 4A. And uh, yes, there's a, a short gap in Terence's lecture between the two tapes, but it doesn't seem to be a big one, and I don't think we missed anything. But interestingly, uh, not very far into tape 4A, he ends the workshop for that day. Yet all of the tapes up through and including 6B are labeled Saturday. So all we can say for sure is that uh, this was recorded sometime during the weekend just before the U.S. presidential election that uh, Bush the first won. In other words, the last November of the Reagan presidency. Now if you remember... Last week, the tape cut off right as Terence was saying that in India there are 13 species of, and uh, then tape 3A stopped. So now here is where tape 3B picks up with the one and only Terence McKenna. Of, of uh, morning glories, which contain these ergonomine-like compounds, and this is the Hawaiian baby wood rose. 
again, the interesting thing is there is no evidence that ancient India, with its obsession for altered states of consciousness, ever utilized any of these uh, of these Asian morning glories. So this would be something somebody would want to look at. Did you want to say something? Just that um, probably you would never be able to get any hard core data on the use of mushrooms in, in uh, Bacterian times, but I was delighted to know in the midst of Avalon when Morgan was supposedly banished, one of the little fairies from Avalon left her some mushrooms to accompany her on some of her journeys. I don't know if you remember that part. I remember that. Yeah, and I went, whoa. Well, Marion Zimmer Bradley lives in the hills of Berkeley. We can assume she's fully installed and hooked in to the myths of the counterculture. Um, but it would be great. Someone told me that they went to the island of um, Iona, I think it is, which is where the Book of Kells was supposedly composed. And they said there were mushrooms everywhere, that it was just to be there is to be inescapably confronted with mushrooms, and yet this doesn't, no tradition, no mention. Yeah, off the coast of England. It's where St. Columba came. St. Columba came and reintroduced Christianity into England in the 900s. Christianity had died out in England. It was only in the advanced Celtic civilizations on the fringes of, of the British landmass that the Christian tradition was uh, was preserved. The other uh, connection, uh, this may fascinate you or not, but the um, misinterpretation and deterioration of the etymology of hallucinogen into its delusional semantic uh, meaning, uh, you know, kind of catalyzed in my brain how mythology has de-evolved into a lie. And if you look up the original meaning of mythology, it means the mutterings of eternity. That's a great meaning. Yeah, yeah. the mutterings of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the whole thing with Avalon uh, being sort of that place between the world that one went to, the mystical part, and then Glastonbury, sort of the other place where all this Christianity uh, existed. And when I was in a mushroom experience one time in a circle and said I was a recovering Catholic, uh, <laughs> trying to evolve myself and find out what my mind was all about. And this one man, shaman student from down in the Amazon, he said, well, you know, um, if you eat these mushrooms, uh, you're going to be excommunicated because the Christians will tell you that once you eat the mushrooms, you're doomed forever to um, hell and Satan and the devil. Well, I said, well, shit. <laughs> you got to be kidding. But I mean, where would that come from? You, maybe the Christian control well, looked at these people and said, look, you know, you just like paganism or everything, and just like wipe out their their connection with with uh, the other world. Well, it's very interesting that uh, when the Jesuits arrived in Mexico and talked to the Indians, 
and found them eating these mushrooms, they said, you know, what do you call it? And they said, we call it Tiananacatl. Well, when they got their lexicons out and got that piece together, what Tiananacatl means is flesh of the gods. Well, the center of the Catholic mystery is the Eucharist, a sacrificial meal where a small wheaten wafer is believed to be transubstantiated into the body and blood of the Son of God. So then to place the psychic experience which follows upon a good Holy Communion next to the psychic experience which follows <laughs> on a good dose of mushrooms, clearly these guys said, you know, this is competition we don't need. We're going to wipe this out. And it is interesting. I mean, think about this for a moment. We, go, we grow so inured to these religious forms Think about the notion of instituting at the center of your religion a rite where you eat your God. And, and that is what is happening in Christianity. It suggests that this sacrificial meal idea, which can be traced back to uh, even to pre-exilic traditions in Judaism, is probably a memory of a relationship to some kind of uh, uh, psychedelic... Uh, experience of some sort. Okay, well, let me continue my survey. You... I have a wonderful modern-day story about how the cultural experience of evangelical Jesus and going to that. I lived in the community for a few years. And in the early 70s, um, I said, mushrooms are not illegal in Scotland. I don't think they are still, but they weren't in the early 70s. And in like 1969, 1970, a lot of people started coming to Finkhorn, and people regularly ate mushrooms. And between 1970 and 1973, it was arguably the most creative time at Finkhorn. And books and music was being done, and the community was being built, and performing arts, and everything. And, and by 1974, 1975, it was no longer acceptable. And they were trying to just be a very proper state community, totally in line with the Christian Scottish environment around, even though they, it, they still weren't illegal in Scotland. Of course, nobody does mushrooms in Northern Scotland. But, um, and it's interesting, when I arrived at Finhorn in the early 80s, people had even forgotten that that tradition had existed. And one person, though, you know, when I was looking at the old person, said, how come people are so much happier back then? They look like they're smiling. And these old pictures, said, oh, everybody was on mushrooms then. This was the man who had lived during that time. Says, but, you know, that gradually died out. But it's interesting because he did them for years and years. And, and at, at the point that I talked to him, he as well felt like they, it, was just not, it was not proper spiritual growth and development to be, to be using mushrooms. Yeah, well, I think institutions will inevitably substitute a rite or a ritual for the authentic, for the real McCoy, because then priests can control uh, the pipeline to God and the parishioner can approach with offerings. And uh, But, you know, if, if everybody can uh, have a pipeline to deity, well, then the whole priest scam is put out of business. Done what? What you're the, precisely what you described. Suppressing? No, substituting essentially a ritual, i.e. meditation or some kind of trip, for the experience and then empower the priest, i.e., kind of Buddhist masters in other words is that process that you're describing in Christianity which I thought happened in Buddhism yeah, in your opinion well uh, Buddhism 
uh, is a heresy on Hinduism. It was Hinduism that did the dirty work for Buddhism. By the time Buddha came along, it was all priestcraft was an ancient tradition in India. But as I'm sure many of you know, the Rig Vedas, which are these tremendous outpourings of poetry that these Indo-Aryan people created as they came out of Central Asia and into India, the Rig Vedas are entirely devoted to the praise of, of a mysterious plant, Soma. The ninth mandala of the Rig Veda says Soma is greater than Indra. Soma is greater than Vishnu. And it just lists the entire pantheon says Soma is greater than all of these things. By the time Buddhism is getting rolling, Soma is a, a suppressed ancient tradition and the Soma sacrifice, which is still being done, is being done with inert materials. Uh, if you want to read on this, why read Wasson's book on Soma and notice how it traces back to Haoma, which is the yet older strata of religious ritual practice that was uh, Zoroastrian and Iranian uh, in origin. And it's very clear, you know, that what we're talking about here is an intensely psychoactive plant and there's great argument about what uh, what it was. Buddhism, because of the long historical record in the East, arises entirely within the historical context. So uh, the, the, the suppression of, of the plant connection was in the earlier stratum of Hinduism. Okay, uh, we discussed the central Mexican complex. It has minor components such as were mentioned here, salvia divinorum, and there are others, not chemically well understood, but also not widely or regularly used. But then as you pass down uh, across the Darien Gap and into South America proper, there is just an explosion of available psychoactives. Not only the tropane complex of the detouras, which now reemerge in the subgenus Brugmansia, the arboreal detouris, which we see around town as these ornamentals with the huge pendulous hanging white flowers. All of those tree detouris, some with yellow, some with orange, some with red, some with white, some with purple flowers, uh, originated in a very constrained area in the Andes and have been used for, for shamanic purposes for a long, long time. Uh, also, coca occur, is endemic to that part of South America. It occurs nowhere else in the world naturally. Uh, but more interesting from my point of view are the tremendous proliferation of DMT cults and options uh, based around two pharmacological approaches. One, you, you orally ingest DMT at the same time as you orally ingest an MAO inhibitor. MAO is monoamine oxidase. This is the enzyme system that oxidizes monoamines. That means makes them harmless. Monoamines are 
this whole family of drugs we're talking about and many other things as well. But if you don't have any monoamine oxidase in your body, then monoamines in your body just stick around because the machinery to degrade them is inoperable. So there are what are called MAO inhibitors. This means you take this compound and it causes the monoamine oxidase in your body to be bound. It can no longer do its work. Uh, DMT ordinarily would be destroyed in the gut, in the intestine, the upper GI tract. But if you inhibit all the MAO uh, in the GI, upper GI tract, then uh, the, the DMT is conveyed into the bloodstream can cross the blood-brain barrier and initiate a psychedelic experience. So this is the strategy of ayahuasca, also called yahe. North of the Kaketa, it's called yahe. South of the Kaketa, it's named in the Quechua language, ayahuasca. Now this is a really fascinating thing for many reasons. First of all, this begins to look like the world's first truly designer drug. Because notice what's happening here. All these other things I've been talking about, peyote, mushrooms, detura, cannabis, what have you, are single plants that require very little preparation. Basically, find it, eat it. That's the way you prepare it. Ayahuasca is very different. It's composed of two plants, neither of which is active except in combination with the other. So somebody figured this out. Well, this may not sound like such an accomplishment until you stand in the Amazon basin and look around you and realize we're talking 50,000 species per square mile and you know 50 million square miles so how did you how did anybody ever figure out that you take the leaves of the little bush and the bark of the woody vine and combine them in these proportions and boil them and concentrate it and then you have this fantastic psychedelic drug the only way that I can imagine is uh, somebody told them and my experience is uh, that these plants talk that this is does not make sense to the rational and discerning mind but nevertheless it is possible for one plant to lead you on to another a perfect example of this is actually in the chemical literature. Melvin Bristol was a student of Schultes in the late 60s and he specialized in the Brugmansias, the arboreal detours, and he went to the valley of the Sibundoy and there they actually add the detura to the ayahuasca. And he took this ayahuasca and while he was on it, the ayahuasca entity showed him a plant. He kept seeing this plant and he couldn't get it out of his mind and the next day after they came down from the trip he was collecting in the forest with Indians and he came upon the plant the exact plant that he had seen in his vision well he thought that was pretty strange 
also he made extensive collections of this plant, took it back to Harvard, analyzed it, and it was in fact psychoactive, did contain psychoactive alkaloids. So, see, it's that we're tiptoeing over the surface of some kind of mystery. We, we maybe can bring ourselves to accept that a voice could speak on mushrooms telling you that you should be kinder to your children or, or love your mother and not be so hard on yourself. But it's a real leap for us to believe that a plant could tell you, you know that plant over there? <laughs> Analyze that sucker. And, uh, you know, in other words, real information, uh, not, not information subject to personal interpretation. Uh, the whole of the Amazonian narcotic complex, as it's called in the old literature, is based on activation of DMT by one strategy or another, either drinking this ghastly beverage, as the literature calls it, the psychedelic beverage, ayahuasca, drinking this beverage, or as you go east into the lowlands, uh, the ayahuasca complex is replaced by what's called the snuff complex. And it is based around a number of species of Myristicaceous trees. The Myristicaceae is the same family as nutmeg occurs in, though nutmeg is an old world member of the genus. But several members of the Myristicaceae uh, contain DMT in the inner bark exudate. And these Indians uh, take the you go out before dawn, before the first rays of sunlight strike the tree, because when that happens, this resin retracts. So before dawn, and they then strip the bark from the cold side of the tree, and they actually put their hands on both sides and determine the coolest side of the tree. Then they strip these long strips of bark back, then you take them back to the village build a fire and let it burn to coals and then spread the coals out, lay these long strips of bark on the coals with the wounded side up, the clean inner side up, and uh, this orange resin will be forced out of the bark and onto the surface. And then you can go along with a, a scraper of some sort, gather the stuff up, put it in a pot, cook it down, grind that in a mortar and pestle and then you have a, a dandy paralytic arrow poison which can also be honked up as an outlandish hallucinogenic snuff and there are many there are many stories of these Yanomamo and Waika people going out on the hunt and honking up their supply of drugs and just getting their poison arrows out and scraping off the points so the guys can get a buzz on uh, and won't have to go back to the village. Well, it's, very, it's, a, it's a very interesting complex. It hasn't been very much researched by Westerners, and the reason is easy to figure out why. Here's how you take this stuff. You get with your buddy and you have a bamboo tube. Maybe some of you remember this from the Emerald Forest. You have a bamboo tube about this long. You pack about this much of it with this ground bark exudate. And then you hunker down in front of your friend, 
put the thing with the loaded end into your nostril, your friend takes a huge inhalation of air and then blasts on the end of this thing and just drives this stuff up into your sinus cavities. Well, everything goes violet. You scream. You salivate outlandishly. You fall over backwards. And by the time you've gotten yourself together, your friend has repacked the other side and is ready to give you that. And then you do that. It goes purple again. You scream. You salivate. You fall over. And then people usually say something like, Good. <laughs> or far out, right. Now with that holy communion crap. And then you see, I'm sure you guys have seen uh, Napoleon Chagnon did a film and Juan Downey did a film. This is great filmic material because in these Waika villages, uh, this has actually become, I wouldn't want to say a drug of abuse, but it certainly is a recreational drug. Not only the shamans are doing this, but people just are doing it. And you just see people leaning against walls with a line of saliva coming out of their mouth. And people just say, oh, he's doing the apina. Oh, okay. And, you know, people in various attitudes of consciousness and unconsciousness. And coca, of course. And at which uh, there's not a whole lot to say about coca. It's an interesting example of a psychoactive, non-psychedelic. Uh, they, the minute you hit the Amazon forest, they are so concerned that you've been misinformed about coca. They say, you know, not a drug. This is not a drug. This is a food. This is a good food. This food makes us healthy. And there is some evidence that this is true, that cocaine bears very little resemblance to coca. Coca is not a spectacular experience. What I found was the way coca works is you're just about to, you've been sitting with these people for hours and they're talking in Witoto or some language that you have no hope of understanding. You're just about ready to excuse yourself and go to your hammock and they drag out the coca and uh, the way you do it, and this is an, uh, another thing, people miss the point in South America because they have no idea how much you're supposed to do. Imagine taking a tablespoon and going into a jar or a sack of flour and getting as much flour as you possibly could on a tablespoon. I mean a high-walled tablespoon, you know. So you get like that much coca. You bring it to your mouth. You put it in, it's dry as dust. And the trick is to slime it over and get it into your cheek and hold it there all without a break in your conversational flow. And, you know, for a, for a honky, the, the main effort is not to strangle and disgrace yourself in this scene because it's usually no women. You're in the longhouse with the men and these guys are you know, the authentic, bare-ass, scarified folks, and you're trying to fit in and choking to death on this wad of coca. Well, then it dribbles down your throat, and suddenly, these people don't seem so bad. 
<laughs> this place doesn't seem so filthy, and you don't seem so tired, and maybe you can make out what they're saying. And in fact, maybe you'll just try out a little of what you've picked up on, and you know, and before you know it, you're the life of the party. <laughs> and then, about 20 minutes later, you think, well, maybe now I'll knock off. And then, like clockwork, they reach for the tin can again and send it around. And they will do this until it's, uh, it's all gone. Uh, now let's see, which way should we go? Let's jump across the water now to Africa. I talked a little about Iboka. Fascinating cult. Very, very similar to ayahuasca in the uh, social patterns that have arisen around it. The way ayahuasca is taken in the Amazon in the mestizo populations that Luna is talking about is people get together on Saturday nights in windowless sheds uh, to about one-third to have the trip, about one-third because they have something physically or psychologically wrong with them that they want help from the shaman with, and about one-third who are wannabes or just hanging in for the social occasion. And uh, in, in, Zaire, in Zaire and Gabon, where the Iboga cult is operating, this same pattern exists. And these things, ayahuasca and Iboga in Africa, are the major forces resisting uh, conversion to Christianity. I mean, they really are the native people's answer to the missionaries. And as such, they act as a tremendous force for uh, social cohesion. Uh, outside of the Iboga complex in Africa, really, we only have rumors. I mean, you will meet shamans from this place and that place. They even come and have spoken in this school who claim knowledge of extremely powerful plant hallucinogens, but they're not, they won't cough up the name or the species or a sample, and until that's done, you have to be very, very skeptical uh, that these things are real. Uh, one of the things that was so interesting to me, and I mentioned this this morning about how the shamans are like scientists, we would take ayahuasca with these people and sing and cure and go through all these trips and the hallucinations and everything. And then uh, a few six, seven hours later, as dawn was breaking and all but the most hardcore people had gone back to their huts, uh, the uh, assessing of the trip would begin by everybody. And inevitably, people would say, well, this was pretty good, but I remember a time in the Rio Waijaga when so-and-so made it, and it was like this and like this. And in other words, amazing dope tales. Amazing stories of other trips in other times and places and what had been achieved. So these shamans were consistently engaged in the search for the perfect high. They were not set in a cultural pattern. They were experimentalists always on the outlook for rumors of new plants, untried combinations, so forth and so on. Uh, returning then to the African situation, uh, there, are, there is a complex of plants and suspect hallucinogens in southern Africa in use among the Hottentots, uh, aboriginal peoples of South Africa. 
and uh, in the family in the family of the Mesembryanthemaceae, uh, which includes the lithops, the Haworthias, these little ground-growing things that look like stones, you know, the so-called rock plants. Well, some of those contain mesembryne. A mesembryne is an alkaloid of some sort with unresearched psychoactivity, but uh, a persistent enough a rumor of its use that it should probably uh, be checked on. Well, then when you turn to uh, the Eurasian continent, the largest landmass on the planet, you discover what I referred to before, this surprising poverty of hallucinogenic plants. You get the belladonna complex, the tropanes. You get the, the opium complex, opium poppies are native to Southeast Asia, have been used by people in Eurasia at least as far back as the ancient Scythians. I mean, we have accounts in Herodotus which make it clear. And in fact, there's a considerable amount of Greek archaeological material that shows opium diadems and opium poppies being used as ornaments by various goddesses. So it was understood uh, that it was psychoactive, yeah. Uh, Robert Graves makes mention in one of his books that um, his, he suggests that, that ambrosia, the ambrosia of the Greek gods, was, were actually uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Have you ever come across another allusion to that? Yes, well, it's an interesting question. It has to do with Eleusis. And as you probably know, Eleusis was a major prophetic mystery site in classical and ancient Greece where every September uh, a ceremony would be done. And the rule was you could only do it once in your life, so you never got a second shot. And everybody in the Greek world would go at some point in their life, Plato, Aeschylus, Aristotle, the whole gang, everybody had this experience. And at the center of it, something was drunk and something happened. And there's been great argument about what was it and what happened. And Wasson and Hoffman and Ruck, who's a classicist at Cornell, all wanted to argue that it was an ergotized beer. In other words, that on the Eleusinian plain, there was a kind of rye being grown, which was infected with a strain of claviceps that uh, was mild, enough that it was hallucinogenic without being convulsive or causing miscarriages or something like that. Because if you just go out and gather uh, ergot smut, claviceps purpura, uh, and t you should be very careful with it. I mean, these er ergot alkaloids can send you into convulsions, uh, some of them, and they're fairly toxic. But it's conceivable that a strain grew on the Eleusinian plain that was made into a kind of beer that was then this hallucinogenic intoxicant. But Robert Graves, who didn't have the kind of public relations machinery that Wasson had, uh, had a different notion. And he claimed that uh, the surviving recipes of the sacrament at Eleusis, and there were, I think, four examples of surviving recipes, all called for the same ingredients. And don't hold me to it, but I think the ingredients were uh, barley, honey, 
water, and something else, hyssop maybe. And he pointed out that a recipe for beer in Greece would never specify water because you understand that water is part of beer. So he said these words were code words and that in Greek the first initial of these four words could be arranged to spell uh, the word muco, which is mushroom. Uh, mucus, the part of the Indo-European language family believes mushrooms are slimy. This is why the word mucus can be traced back to the word myco, mushroom, myconos, mycenae. In fact, means the land of the mushrooms. And so the role of mushrooms in generating the religions of early Greece is a completely unexplored area. It's never been fully thought through. And uh, this is called an augum, by the way, where you take the first letter of a list and the first letter of the items of a list spells out a secret meaning. And it was a favorite trick of Irish bardic poets, which Graves was very much into that. But uh, I, I intel... Now, here is a great project for somebody. We need someone to prove that you can brew a hallucinogen out of uh, claviceps on rye. I mean, this ergotized beer wrap, it's just a phrase until somebody puts the stein on the table in front of you. I mean, we, they would be, go a great distance toward trying to prove their case. Someone should go to the Eleusinian plain and see if they can still find any cereal grains growing there, and if so, can they infect them with claviceps, or is there claviceps in the area? Now, there's a problem here. I understand there's an oil refinery where the uh, Eleusinian mysteries used to be practiced, but one, even in California, one could at least take a step toward understanding this because we have in California species of grasses called Spartina. Spartina grows, uh, there's quite a population of it on the cliffs above the sea just north of Santa Cruz. Well, Spartina could support Claviceps purpura as, a, as an organism. So why not grow Spartina and attempt to infect it with a, stra a mild strain of ergot which you could get from the American type culture collection or something like that. See if an ergotized beer could be uh, brewed. The absence of mushrooms in these places does not disprove the theory because all of the Mediterranean has been drying out throughout historical times. Uh, and there are Greek vases and freezes, which do show mushrooms in situations of, uh, that are ambiguous as to whether or not they're being venerated or exactly what is happening. Uh, now let me see if I've missed anything. I mentioned the, the Argeria complex in, in India. That's the Hawaiian baby wood rose. Now that's an interesting one, because, and I'm always on the alert for these. I'm interested in unclaimed indole complexes. In other words, why was Argeria nervosa 
never utilized by anybody. It's extremely powerful. You only have to take eight or nine seeds and you don't have to prepare it at all. Just chew it up and swallow it. Uh, how come? No cult, no impact on the history of ideas. Well, we don't know. Those 13 species of Argeria are spread from India down through Polynesia. And it's called Hawaiian baby woodrose, but it was introduced into Hawaii a hundred years ago. It has nothing to do with Hawaii. Uh, the only major complex that I didn't discuss uh, is the cannabis complex. Now, this is one that is in. This is not an indole, and this is. Uh, ha there are many anomalous things about cannabis. First of all, it's what's called a polyhydric alcohol the only psychedelic polyhydric alcohol uh, known to science. Uh, it's an extremely old plant. I mentioned last night the relationship of the metaphors of storytelling and weaving and language. And of course, hemp is a fiber plant. And we find hemp and mass uh, go back to uh, uh, as late as uh, PPNB, pre-pottery Neolithic B at Chatalhuyuk, there are uh, there are hemp mats. Well, it's very unlikely with what with tossing waste from weaving into fires and and the oiliness of the seed and so forth that the psychoactive properties of this thing were not discovered. Cannabis originates in Africa, the original, I mean, I'm sorry, originates in Central Asia. The original species is Ruderales. And then very early in prehistory, it divided into the resin race, Indica, and, uh, and fiber races, and then it was carried across the land bridge, presumably, into North America, and that accounts for the, the sativa uh, variant and so forth. Uh, Herodotus describes, uh, interestingly enough, hemp was used, marijuana was used for thousands and thousands of years before it was smoked. One of the hardest things to wrap your mind around is the notion that until Columbus discovered the New World 500 years ago, no one in Europe had ever smoked or conceived of smoking anything. It was a New World cultural practice. And if you read Columbus's diary of when he landed in the New World, he was amazed. He wrote, the natives drink smoke. That was the only way he could imagine. He said, you know, what are you doing? And then, of course, it was less than a hundred years before it was a major vice of the sophisticated raconteurs of Europe. Within a hundred years of the introduction of tobacco into Europe, tobacco was being buried in the graves of Lapland shamans above the Arctic Circle. So the shamanic nature of tobacco was immediately recognized even in the European context. Herodotus describes marijuana ingestion as a process somewhat like uh, being in a sweat lodge and then pouring hemp seeds and hemp waste onto the hot rocks and letting it mingle with the steam in this closed space and deep breathing. But nobody ever had the notion of a pipe 
or anything like this. Uh, and it's very interesting, um, well, for many different reasons. One is that, that, that it's a new use for the human body, less than 500 years old uh, in, in European culture. Uh, at Nan Nok Tha in northern Thailand, they, and in other Neolithic graves, they have found uh, long bones, arm and leg bones, with burned out centers. And they don't know whether this was a marrow extraction procedure or it was a chillum. If, if you know what a chillum is, a chillum is a ceramic tube, narrow at one end and wide at the other, and you pack it with hash and tobacco, and then you hold it and you do this to it. Well, it may be that smoking was known in Asia in Neolithic times, but somehow died out in the pre-classical period and had to be reintroduced from uh, the New World. Karen, you want to comment about uh, Amanita muscaria? Yes, good. I'm glad you reminded me. Amanita muscaria is perhaps the old world hallucinogen par excellence, at least in the opinion of Gordon Wasson and a lot of other scholars. The problem with it is it's extremely difficult to get a reliable, positive experience from it. Now, the reasons for this are complex. First of all, it's geographically variant, it's seasonally variant, and it's genetically variant. So only if you have lived in an ecosystem virtually your entire life and have inherited the accumulated knowledge from the shamanic elders of your tribe are you going to know whether you've got a good one or not. Nevertheless, Gordon Wasson tried to argue that it was the Ur hallucinogen, the prototypic hallucinogen uh, of prehistory that uh, was being used by these Vedic peoples who invaded India. In fact, he thought it was Soma. I think, and I had correspondence with him about it before he died, I think the Soma question isn't settled, and it could well have been a coprophytic mushroom associated with the dung of cows. After all, the role of cattle in uh, Indian religion is very central, and in fact, the role of cattle in early religion generally is extremely central. I mean, you do not get goddess religion in the ancient Near East without cattle worship. Cattle and goddesses seem to go very much together. And on the other hand, you know, the Dionysian Mithraic complex is a bull cult. And it too can be traced back into time until it's just lost in remote antiquity. So, yes, that's, uh, that's the Arctic mushroom used by Siberian shamans. And it's been made the prototypic hallucinogen because Siberian shamanism was made the prototype of all other shamanism. Uh, only because some anthropologist somewhere decided that that uh, would be a good idea. Australia is, again, singularly poor in known hallucinogens. I always say in known hallucinogens because somebody could go out into these places and come up with something brand new, something that we've overlooked. Uh, this is a great challenge for field workers. And then the other thing I want to say, and, and then I'll stop uh, for today, 
is uh, just a bit about this issue about synthetics. Uh, are all psychedelics the same? Are synthetics in any way inferior or superior to naturally occurring hallucinogens? And if so, why or why not? Uh, this controversy began for me as like an aesthetic issue. I just felt better about taking plants sanctioned by thousands of years of use, and, uh, but I didn't particularly feel that it was a strong distinction. But the more time I've spent with it, and the more time I've spent with Rupert Sheldrake's theory of morphogenetic fields, the more I come to see that I really think there is a very large distinction between synthetic and naturally occurring drugs. Now, it's not a distinction that you're going to get a chemist to agree to or a materialist. It is, as far as they're concerned, DMT from a plant and DMT synthesized in the laboratory are exactly the same thing. And as far as they're concerned, a synthetic hallucinogen such as oh, I don't know, ketamine, let's give it the benefit of the doubt for a moment, ketamine, and a natural hallucinogen such as uh, psilocybin, uh, the differences do not reside in the fact that one is organic and one is synthetic. But I think that these plants take people as much as people take the plants. So that when you have a mushroom trip, you not only are having a mushroom trip, you are contributing to the future mushroom trips of everybody in the future who will take this thing. In other words, you make a small offering on the altar and that henceforth becomes part of the setting of the thing. So that when you take one, it's like the notion of the Tao of the ancestors. When you take one of these uh, uh, ancient, ancient hallucinogens, you are locking into the morphogenetic fields of all the people who ever took it. How else are we to explain the fact that when you take morning glory seeds, you are flooded with Mayan imagery of stair-step cities and hieroglyphed balustrades and uh, uh, people dressed in gold and quetzal finery and all this. Or uh, that when you take ayahuasca, even in this culture, you know, there is a very strong impression of the jungle, of jaguars, of rivers. Uh, I mean, these things are coded into these compounds somehow. So it seems to me it, it is, uh, without talking about issues of toxicity and pharmacological uncertainty, it's the content of the naturally occurring hallucinogens is, uh, is much, much richer. And then one last point that I want to make to, uh, to sum up this geographical survey of what is available is to say, again, another research frontier is China. There is very little evidence of any use of hallucinogens in China, and yet there there is, it is, there are clues. There are clues uh, that mushrooms were understood, 
that other plants may have been used, whose, the knowledge of which has been lost. And uh, the Cultural Revolution did a pretty thorough job on wiping out this kind of traditional Taoist shamanic data. But a, a very simple way of focusing the problem is to say there has never been reported from China a psilocybin-containing mushroom. And yet, I'll bet if a reasonably informed investigator were to go to southern China and spend no more than two or three months off the beaten path talking to country people, I'll bet you could come up with half a dozen psychoactive mushrooms with a history of folk usage. It's simply the question has not been asked. Well, we're going to not have a clear understanding of the historical development of Chinese thought and institutions unless we know what their relationship to the invisible world precisely was. And I think the, the uh, uh, indigenous tradition of shamanism, which became then Taoism, which became the real substratum of Chinese religion while it weathered various uh, late grafted uh, uh, variants and foreign imports like Buddhism, but that native stratum of Taoistic shamanism hints very, very strongly uh, that there were psychedelic usage of these plants in ancient China. Okay, that's it for today, and we'll see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Sorry to give you such a burst of information, but uh, this will lay the basis, I hope, for tomorrow's discussion. So think about what we didn't cover, what you hope to hear that you haven't, and then tomorrow we'll try to tie up all the loose threads. Thanks very much. Sure. Okay. Um, it looks like uh, almost everybody is here. There was a woman yesterday who isn't here. I wonder if she was a one-dayer or if she'll show up. Do you all remember her? No one saw her but me. <laughs> Yes, she sat. Yes. Oh, she will. Okay. Well. Um, it is. It's always somewhat late on Sunday morning, so we'll. Uh, a couple of people expressed interest in this uh, um, week that I'm doing at Esalen so I might describe it a little bit. It's quite different from this. Um, it's an in-depth involvement in the mathematics of the I Ching and then a theory that I evolved out of my engagement with that that has to do with the structure of uh, time and analysis of history as a predictable phenomenon. It has no connection with psychedelics other than that the entire thing was dreamed up under the influence of psychedelics. <laughs> but it's a, a stand-alone idea, and if I'm able to control the group, I will keep it quite far from psychedelics except in moments of uh, rhetorical desperation. <clears throat> but if you're if you're interested in the I Ching, and don't let the word mathematics put you off. I am not a mathematician, and the best mathematicians aren't either. 
you uh, simply, uh, it's just a way of uh, talking about it and doing analysis that was uh, very fruitful. So that's a five-day from the 28th of this month till the 2nd of December. And Esalen has given us the big house and uh, a lot of people will bring their computers. There'll be a lot of machine implementation people. It'll go from Taoist scholars to assembly language programmers, and everybody will have uh, more of a contribution to make than they suspect at the time. Well, hopefully uh, uh, you turn some of this over in your mind uh, in the time that we've been apart. I certainly did in the sense of trying to figure out what I had missed and whose concerns had not been met. Uh, and what I came up with was uh, your interest in the specifics of, of time, place, and manner, which, I, which should certainly be covered because it's operational information. Uh, talking about the the various plant visionary plant complexes that we talked about yesterday uh, each one of these things has a style and a set of demands that it makes on its practitioners and if you look at the ethnographic literature you then see uh, how the people who've used these things over millennia have come to terms with them, how they have accommodated themselves to these things. Um, for instance, in the Iboka cult of, uh, of Gabon, what is aimed for is early on in the involvement with the plant, uh, a massive dose is taken. And then, and they say it splits your head open, and you never have to take very much again because somehow uh, a creode or a predilection has been created and then you are initiated into this. Uh, it, when you read the ethnographic literature, it's hard to believe how much they say they are taking. I mean, there's a saying in Gabon, Bawiti, which is what they call Iboga, Bawiti begins at 60, and that means 60 grams. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> even allowing for the fact that they're using fresh root and you might get a collapse rate of close to uh, 50 or 75 percent, that still means they're saying Bawiti begins at 15 to 20 grams, which uh, uh, from my own experience with this stuff, I can tell you, is uh, not even a conceivable place to begin. That's not a strong hit. That's an impossible hit. <laughs> so, um, the mushrooms, uh, and, and you have to know, pharmacologically speaking, the, the window of effective activity. Every, every drug, every compound has a profile which you can imagine as a linear spectrum. Below a certain amount, it's undetectable. Above that amount, uh, it becomes detectable first as this CNS 
arousal that I mentioned yesterday, and then as a full-blown psychedelic experience, and then at higher doses it begins to have toxic effects. All drugs are toxins, and so and people often make the mistake of thinking that uh, if you have a toxic substance and you take half of it, then it's not toxic because there is no register, you don't register its effects. But of course, everything is incrementally toxic. Now, some things have, uh, are very safe, have a great range of effectiveness well below the range where any toxicity begins to set in. Other compounds are uh, active as psychedelics in a, at a level just slightly below the level where you're going to begin to have toxic effects. So you want to know what the profile is of the particular substance that you're thinking of taking. Uh, in pharmacology, one of the parameters that they establish is what's called an LD50, which is a fairly unpleasant concept, which you should nevertheless be informed of. LD50 means lethal dose 50. This means we have a hundred mice, and we give them an unknown drug at the point where half of them die that is the LD50 dose of that compound and there's an LD100 and LD10 and so forth. What you want is for the LD50 to be tremendously high relative to the effective dose. Now the the perfect or model compound in that case is of course LSD. LSD is active at the 25 microgram range, 25 gamma. A microgram is a millionth of a gram. It's well below a smidgen. Now, uh, (laughs) the LD50 for lysergic acid has never been determined. Uh, uh, Do you agree? It's never been found how much it takes to kill half of of the test animals. So that makes it a tremendously safe drug if, if mortality is the only concern. But of course, uh, I think what most psychedelic trippers eventually realize is mortality is rarely at risk in psychedelic experiences. What's at risk is sanity. <laughs> and, you know, being nuts is not as bad as being dead, but nevertheless, it can spoil your entire day. <laughs> so, um, and it's very reassuring having taken a, a, a compound like psilocybin and to have become totally convinced that you are dying to just remind yourself that the LD50 is 200 times more than you took and therefore it's impossible and you merely have to discipline the hind brain and take control of your fear and then you will be all right. I wish somebody would have told me that. (laughs) (laughs) And you're you're a pharmacologist. But when you're in it, you really... When, you're dying. When you're in it and you think you're dying, you weren't able to say to yourself, yeah, yeah. now see here, no one has ever died at this dose level. And uh, 
Well, it is a question. Uh, you you start imagining that perhaps there was something in there that wasn't just psilocybin. Or, oh yeah, uh, that that's a that's a good point. Or your heart can't bear it. I thought I, I had tachycardia and I thought my heart was going to explode. Pound right out of your chest. That you make a point which I want to elaborate on. We've talked so much about hallucination here, and always because of my particular bent, which I have unconsciously transferred to you, it's, uh, we're talking about visual hallucinations. But all psychedelic explorers should be aware of the concept of what is called a cognitive hallucination. This is a much more insidious phenomenon. This is uh, quite simply an out-and-out delusion. The commonest form of cognitive hallucination goes like this. You take mushrooms. An hour and 20 minutes into it, it's getting mighty, mighty strange. And this is especially a problem with first-timers. And you realize with the force of revelation that you didn't take psilocybin. You took a poisonous mushroom and now you are going to die. This is an out-and-out -out cognitive hallucination which is as real as a belief. But it's not a disturbance in the visual field, it's a disturbance in the, in the, in the cognitive machinery. A story, a friend of mine, uh, had never taken mushrooms and was very concerned about how to do it and said and got the instructions from me silent darkness quiet rooms stay, stay sitting and took them in his room in silent darkness and at about the hour and a half point realized with a, a demonic chuckle that I had been kidding I had been putting him on and actually uh, had told him to stay in his room because we were preparing a surprise party for him at the bar two blocks down the street. <laughs> and, uh, you know, chuckling to himself with this realization, he showered, dressed, and went down to the bar two blocks down the street, pushed open the door and said, I'm here. <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> the guy behind the bar said, oh, really? Uh, <laughs> well, the trip got wilder from there because in the wake of disconfirmation of one of these cognitive hallucinations, people tend to become confused, paranoid, and upset. So uh, <coughs> you have to continuously track your mental uh, processes and it's really good to uh, uh, stick with whatever rules that you've laid down for yourself. I actually apply this technique in my own life. If I get to the place where I cannot understand what is happening, I try to think back to the last moment when I did understand what was happening and then do what I say, said I was going to do then having given up on understanding it in the moment. Uh, the, the practical fallout from this in terms of psychedelic research is what we call the chain to a tree technique, which is where you just chain yourself to a tree 
and providing you don't hang yourself with the chain, uh, this cuts down the possibility of uh, doing something peculiar. Psychedelics tend to be, this doesn't tend to be a problem, but for instance with Datura, the best intended and most uh, together people lose it completely and then come back into it 12 or 24 hours later to just survey the swath of wreckage that they have cut through their own and other people's lives. I had a friend years ago, a very diminutive, attractive woman who took Datura with a couple of boyfriends, waited hours and hours, nothing happened. They finally decided to go to their uh, homes. She walked them down the stairs, said goodbye to them at the top of the stairs. It actually happened in the hate. And that was the last thing she remembered until she came to uh, on the sixth floor of the federal building in the San Francisco County Jail. And the, the charge was assault on the arresting officer. And the evidence was the officer's thumb, which had been bitten off. So um, she was, you know, an Antioch. PhD in medieval literature. <laughs> so uh, it happens. It happens to the best of us. Um, yeah. Can't, can't you eliminate a lot of a lot of that uh, cognitive uncertainty by having somebody with you when you do this? Yeah, you can. The problem, uh, the ideal situation, and always I'm only speaking from my own experience, and I may have an odd take on it because God knows I'm odd, but uh, to my mind, the ideal situation is to have the sitter two rooms away and you have a doorbell or the equivalent. Because if the sitter is with you, you start to analyze the sitter. And, you, and as someone once said to me in India, face is index of mind. And the sitter can just become uh, an existential galaxy of possibilities because you, know, they, you can read their history, their intent, their most secret thoughts, your belief in what is their most secret thoughts. It, people are concrescences of ambiguity that you don't want to uh, get too tangled up with in that state unless you really uh, are ready for the trip to take that particular direction. I don't know if it was in this workshop or the other night that I mentioned, I recall a trip I took with this English guy and uh, it took me two weeks to get his voice out of my head it just became like this this accompaniment to consciousness, this stream of sort of understated English upper-class gibberish <laughs> on all subjects. And I finally, you know, it, it retracted. That's called becoming a victim of the transference. All psychotherapists are aware of this. The... the um, the transference is when you get dragged into the other person's system of values or delusion. There's even a name for this in, uh, in uh, clinical psychology. It's called allophrenia. Allophrenia 
is schizophrenic behavior on the part of normal people in the presence of schizophrenics. And this is a real problem. Your friend is put in the place. You go to see your friend to cheer them up. And your friend is not violently insane, but saying strange things, behaving in strange ways. And you, in an effort to relate to them, begin saying strange things and behaving in strange ways. And before you know it, uh, you know, the resident has to break in and escort you to the elevator because you're causing a problem in the ward. Uh, uh, the transference is this phenomenon happening among people who are more or less psychologically healthy. But still, it can be very uh, disrupting. I think the sitter should be there only if there's a three-dimensional emergency. Uh, and the sitter... Um, the notion... I like the word sitter because it's operational. It tells what you should do. And uh, uh, guide is not such a pleasing word. This implies control, prior knowledge, uh, hierarchy, uh, so forth and so on. The best uh, guide sitter I ever knew was a, a wonderful old guy. I'm, he's dead now, but I'm not yet ready to say his name in public. I'm sure some of you know him. But his style was he read these paperback trash novels, you know, and he would just sit down with somebody, give them the stuff, and every once in a while, they would fight their way out of this ocean of hallucination to deliver some insight. And he would just put down his book and turn to them and say, that's nice, now go back to the music. Pick up his book and, you know, this guy could get 600 pages uh, in a situation where he was uh, nominally in charge of a dozen people who were tripping. So, uh, non-intervention, I think. And then, then there's the question of doing it with another person. And, and, this, then, and then the question is, is it going... Meaning that the other person is going to be stoned, too. And uh, this has its own pitfalls and ambiguities. If it's your uh, lover, your sexual partner, then, in my opinion, that's probably the best way to spend your time. Uh, if it's not, then, uh, you know, the sky is the limit. You're going to learn more about this person than perhaps you were prepared to. Sometimes it's easy. It's no problem. Everybody stays who they appeared to be before you took off. But sometimes, you know, the masks just start being hurled across the room in all directions, and, uh, and you don't know where it's going to leave you. My, my approach, I guess, is uh, one of two extremes. I guess I sort of belong to the sensory deprivation school that lie down, shut up, silent darkness, music very judiciously, if at all, and I always do it at night, which some people find that strange, but I, night is quiet. The energy dies down. There's calm and still between midnight and 4 a.m. Uh, the other end of the spectrum is someone like Salvador Roquette, 
who, you know, gives you three drugs, plays heavy metal rock and roll, then you get to see the Auschwitz film. And, no, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I mean, it is an effort to, so far as I can tell, drive you absolutely starkers, you know? And, and I would not, uh, I would not submit myself to that. This same polarity exists in therapeutic theories. Some schools of therapy want you to lose it, want you to weep, lament, rend your clothing, throw yourself on the floor, kick your feet in the air, and this is called getting out your stuff or working through your stuff. Um, what I find about this kind of thing is it resonates too long. You know, it doesn't feel like you've gotten clear of it. It feels like you have simply objectified it. Uh, but, you know, life is an uncompleted puzzle. I could certainly uh, change my mind. I have never felt that the primary use of these things was to cure what is called in modern parlance neurosis, what I call unhappiness. It isn't for that. It is, uh, and again, this may be my, the influence of Jung in my background. You know, Jung felt that there was no such thing as normality, that life, the task of, of life was what he called individuation. And he felt it really doesn't even begin until you approach middle life. I mean, you must leave the twenties behind you because they are so uh, socially and hormonally turbulent that you're just basically trying to make sense of it on a day-to-day -day basis. But then you settle in and this unfolding takes place. And I really assume that we are all beyond neurosis, not that we are not neurotic, but that we all have our own strategies and our own take on our own... Uh, quirks and peculiarities. The, the psychedelic thing as tool is more to go beyond the legacy of the normal into the, the transpersonal or the suprapersonal and really view life as an open-ended uh, domain to be explored. So uh, I find myself talking to psychologists a lot because this is where this has been seized upon because it does perturb the dynamics of the psyche. But for instance, I don't think you should give people hospitalized for psychotic behavior psychedelics. They're having enough trouble. They've, they're, they are being overwhelmed by the contents of the unconscious 24 hours a day and have no tool to make sense of it. The rest of us, can make sense of overwhelmment by the unconscious if it doesn't go on too long. I mean, I don't think there's any one of us who would wish to take mushrooms, arrive at the heights, and just stay there. Because after 48, 72 hours, some situation would arise which would cast, uh, cast us into an extreme state of disequilibrium. It's more like diving. A friend of mine said many, many years ago, the yogin, and sub-in, shaman, psychedelic voyager, the yogin and the schizophrenic dive in the same ocean. It's just that the yogin remembers to take his tanks along. 
And that's what it is, you know. I mean, there is this possibility of inundation and overwhelmment. Well, let's return to the to the uh, the matter of dosage and set and setting. Yeah. I have a question. You mentioned yesterday how you favored organic materials over synthetic. What about you know taking organic materials but then refining, you know, narrowing them down, getting rid of all the other ingredients in the plant? Because that's our Western tendency to just take something, refine it down, you know, isolate the active ingredients, and then take doses of that. Do you see that the other uh, natural ingredients, that the mushrooms or ayahuasca, whatever it is, have provided, kind of synergize the active ingredients and and make the trip easier or smoother? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, rarely in a plant where you have a psychoactive compound will it occur all by itself. Uh, for instance, in the peyote cactus, there is mescaline, there's N-methylmescaline, there's anhalamine, anhaloine, uh, methyl, uh, well, there's a whole family, about a dozen of these things. Similarly, in, in the coca bush, cocaine uh, uh, and several other canes and several other active compounds. So when you take a, a, a plant, you're getting a broad spectrum of these, of these uh, active molecules that are, have a familial relationship to each other. And no chemist has ever exactly explained to me what's happening, but I think all chemists and pharmacologists are aware of the fact that um, natural compounds, even extracted and purified, or let's just say even extracted, are smoother than uh, their synthetic counterpart. I recently had occasion to relearn this because there's been some amount of experimentation with 5-methoxy-DMT, which is uh, not like DMT, but it is short-acting and creates a profound oceanic emotion but it also uh, in the pure substance there's a tremendous heart rush in the first 30 seconds I mean you just feel like you're in an up elevator that knows no limit and just about the time that you figure you're going to go into some kind of uh, uh, emergency situation it tends to back off so then, recently, there has been this uh, material in the underground called uh, toad foam, which is actually 5-methoxy-DMT extracted from the glands of a large southwestern toad. Well, when you smoke that, it too is 5-MAO-DMT, but there is no heart rush, and it also doesn't last as long. It's much more benign and easygoing. Even in cases where there isn't a detectably variant spectrum of compounds present, for instance, in the psilocybin in Stropharia cubensis, really there are only two active principles, uh, psilocybin and psilocin, and psilocin is the uh, dephosphorylated ester of psilocybin, so they are basically the same compound. Nevertheless, if you talk to somebody who has only taken Sandoz psilocybin, uh, it's much less animated and interesting than organic psilocybin. Now, the counterexample to this is uh, 
when uh, Hoffman synthesized psilocybin for the first time, they, uh, he gave some of it to Wasson, and Wasson took it back to Huatla in the Sierra Mazateca of Oaxaca and gave it to Maria Sabina. And Maria Sabina said, the spirit of the mushroom is in the little pill. And this story has been repeated over and over again. Well, my assumption simply is, you know, Maria Sabina was a wily old lady. I mean, it's not writ anywhere that shamans have to always tell you the truth. And uh, I, I very seriously doubt that the experience... I've never had the opportunity to take chemically pure psilocybin. Uh, the difference between the morning glories and LSD is one of animation and color. The, the morning glories, you see... I'm talking now about Ipomoea and uh, Turbina, the Mexican species. When you take them, there is a flood of Aztec, Toltec, Mayan imagery. It's just, I mean, it's uncanny. You can't believe it while it's happening, you know, that you would see this much glyphs and carved obsidian and quetzal feathers and all of this stuff. Is it the morphogenetic field? Is it the, the broader vegetable spectrum of the alkaloid rather than the synthetic? Who knows? These things uh, remain to be looked at. In terms of the, the theory of morphogenetic resonance, it seems to me, um, you know, some of you probably follow Rupert's ideas and, and Rupert himself. The problem is that the, the morphogenetic field is very difficult for instruments to detect. And in fact, I think so far the only instrument that can detect it is the human mind. And uh, this probably means, you know, that it's perturbing a field that is very, very far removed from the fields associated with the four or five ordinary forces of nature. But for instance, when you go to Tikal or in Guatemala or Borapadur in central Java or Conorak uh, on the Puri coast of India and you take these psychedelics the past is present I mean you see these places at their height and you can say well it's just suggestion you know but uh, I don't know when I take ayahuasca wherever I take it I encounter the motifs typical of Amazonian shamanism the jaguar the giant anaconda uh, and and uh, to to show you that sometimes the iconography of these compounds is not predictable, black people and everyone in the Amazon says this that you see black people. Well, there are no black people in the Amazon, not really. I mean, in the lower Amazon there are a few, but in the upper Amazon, a black person is as rare as a Kurd, and uh, yet. Everybody insists on this. Well, I have had this experience on ayahuasca. And to call it seeing black people is a very mild gloss on what it is. It's like being at the Apollo Ballroom on a hot <laughs> evening in 1960 and Aretha Franklin is on stage. I mean, it is deep hit of blackness. Yeah, uh-huh. So what does it tell 
I don't know quite what to make of it, you know. I don't know why. And uh, Claudio Naranjo gave the ayahuasca, uh, gave harmaline to urban uh, people in Santiago, Chile, stockbrokers and advertising executives, people who had no connection to the jungle, and they reported jaguars, giant snakes, jungles, and black people. So uh, this, to me, is a tremendously fertile area for, for Jungians, for morphogenetic field people uh, to look into. Uh, psychics have claimed, since who knows how long, that by holding an object in their hand, they could penetrate its past states of being. Well, it's like all these other occult claims, in my experience, mantra, uh, yantra, yoga posturing, uh, past life recovery. Uh, for me, none of these things are possible uh, unless I'm stoned. Then they all become possible. It's just like you just throw the switch. Suddenly mantras work. I can chant mantras till hell freezes over in an unstoned state. Uh, the precondition for empowering occult idea systems seems to be a shift in brain chemistry. And it's, you know, to be noted that in these cultures where a lot of magic, a lot of violation of natural law is going on, there is a lot of psychedelic uh, stuff going on. These ayahuasca shamans, say, among the Aguaruna Hivaro, for instance, which is a very uh, no-nonsense tribe of uh, head hunting people in the Amazon, the shamans live continuously in a state of altered consciousness. I mean, they are taking this stuff all the time. It is a food item. And what it would be like to be the shaman of the Aguaruna in the jungle all the time, taking all this stuff, it's hard to imagine because when you just do it once, all plants have auras, all, all plants have songs which can be extracted out of them. I mean, they are living, literally, in some kind of other dimension. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And sometimes it feels to me like we are all living in some other dimension. How about you? Are you able to keep up with the fast pace of world news these days without thinking that you're in some kind of a time warp? I know that if I was an investor thinking about putting some money into a movie, I sure wouldn't buy any scripts that uh, come directly from the current news stories because uh, I don't think anybody would believe their plots. It's uh, really getting kind of freaky out there, don't you think? Ah, chaos, the food of creation. Don't you just love it? And I have to admit that Terrence had me laughing a bit ago when he told about those South American Indians who would scrape off the poison from their arrows and get high on it rather than engage their enemies. Now those guys are my kind of warriors. And uh, speaking of warriors, it's time once again for a little talk about Burning Man. And I realize that for most of our fellow saloners this may hold little interest since uh, you aren't going to be able to make it this year. But that doesn't mean you can't be there in spirit. And in fact, that was how I participated last year, via the Internet. 
In case you uh, didn't already know this, uh, my friend John Graham sets up a live video camera on a high tower at center camp each year. And as the camera scans the playa, John uh, uses a feed from one of the walkie-talkie channels for sound. While it's not the same as being there, it uh, is a lot less dusty and uh, somewhat more comfortable if you want to participate that way. And uh, you can find that link once the festival starts just on the uh, BurningMan.com webpage. Now, during the past several weeks, uh, quite a few of my friends have had to cancel their trips to Burning Man for one reason or another. And uh, the reasons range from finances to love. The bottom line here is that uh, if you aren't 100% sure that you absolutely must go to the burn, well, then you probably shouldn't go. Knowing uh, when not to go, I think, is a mark of a true burner. Since I've had to do this myself, I know for a fact that it takes a lot of courage to back out of a burn after you've told the whole world about your plans. But hey, I, I don't know any burners that haven't had to do that once or twice, so don't worry about it. Besides, uh, there are ways to become involved without actually going there. And one of those opportunities is uh, now coming to all of our graphic artist friends in the form of a poster contest. That's right, a poster contest. Now, since we've never done anything like this before in the salon, I'll have to take a page out of the dopefiend.co.uk's podcast series where he's had several contests like this, uh, not to mention their annual joint rolling contest at Dopestock each year. So here is our challenge to the artistic community. As you know, Bruce Damer and I are preparing an evening extravaganza featuring audio and video clips of Terrence McKenna and Timothy Leary some of which uh, have never been shown in public before. And in last week's podcast, I, I read Bruce's draft announcement of our little happening, and now I would like to uh, point you to the program notes for this podcast at thepsychedelicsalon.org, where you'll find a link to the concept poster that Bruce created to give you an idea of what we're looking for. Now, while I say this is a contest, I should also point out that uh, there are no rules, no judges, and uh, no prizes. (laughs) At least that's the plan so far, if you want to call it a plan. And uh, if you're a burner, you already know that this is probably one of the better thought-out Burning Man projects that I've been involved in. Which brings me to an email that has some questions that I think uh, quite a few of our fellow saloners who are going to the burn for the first time are also asking. This one comes from uh, J.C., who writes in part, What is your suggestion for a tent, or any shelter for one? I heard canvas works great out there against the dust. Well, J.C., the uh, first thing to get out of the way is the dust. And uh, the story here is that uh, it doesn't really matter what you do, because uh, everything, and I mean everything, that you bring to Burning Man will essentially be ruined for most other purposes. And not only is the dust uh, going to get into everything you bring, uh, there's no way to get it out afterwards. So, most any tent will do. Uh, The one I use is uh, just one of those lightweight ones, but I stake it down with rebar. Uh, That's something you should know. The stakes that come with most tents are completely worthless on the playa. The next question JC asks is, Does the dust cause car problems a lot of the time, and should I expect to be in an alkaline cloud on the drive-in with the windows closed? Yeah, it's a a dusty drive into camp, J.C., but the speed limit is five miles an hour, and so as long as the wind hasn't picked up yet, your drive-in should be okay. 
And as for car problems, uh, I've always carried a spare air filter that I change out just before leaving at the end of the event, but uh, that's uh, probably overkill. His next question is, Do you suggest using the standard evaporation pools suggested for beginners? Is there a new method or a different one that you know of? Again, only one person probably need a shower or two. Well, here again, JC, you probably aren't going to like my answer, but I've found that it's uh, just not worth the trouble to haul in enough water for showers, which also entails the evaporation ponds and uh, a plan to carry out the gray water that doesn't evaporate because you, uh, you just can't pour it on the ground. But if you're feeling exceptionally grody, then uh, you can join a bunch of us who run behind the water truck that hoses down the streets every morning. Just be prepared for a very powerful gush of very cold water and uh, then a muddy walk back to your camp. <laughs> Basically, uh, personal hygiene isn't uh, a really high priority on the playa. Now, J.C. goes on about his uh, water and shower issue to say, Alternatively, is it hard to find people who are willing to let you take a shower or go to the bathroom in their RV? Possibly for some sort of exchange of any sort. Heard the bathrooms are pretty bad. Well, I don't think the uh, porta potties are all that bad. They keep them pretty clean, and they uh, clean them out every morning and afternoon. And uh, actually, I'd be surprised if you can find anyone who would be willing to share their precious water for a stranger to shower in. But I'm sure that it probably happens all the time out there. It it just seems a, a little rude to me because uh, one of the things that the event is about is radical self-sufficiency. And I think that you'll find that you get a lot more out of the experience if you bring things to share and uh, help those who are less prepared. After all, it's a, a gifting community, and uh, I've found that the more you share, the more fun you have. Now, the last question that he asks is, uh, is in Theon Village going to be there? And is it possible to set up there? Well, yes, uh, in Theon Village we'll be back again this year, but I'm not sure about their camping arrangements. However, uh, just now I went to intheonvillage.com and discovered a notice that they're going to be announcing their camp registration policy any day now. So you might want to check that out. In fact, in Theon Village is where Bruce Damer and I will be holding our Terrence and Timothy happening at 9 p.m. on Friday night. At least that's the uh, plan right now. And uh, also Bruce and I will be there one day uh, during the week for a daytime interactive plyalog of some kind. And uh, we'll also be doing one at Shift Camp. But uh, I'm not sure about the days and times for those talks. So that's the Burning Man plan so far, but uh, unfortunately only a few of our fellow saloners are going to be at the burn this year. So uh, hopefully we'll have both video and audio of the talks and uh, happenings, etc. to uh, pass along to you afterwards. But there are two other events out this way that uh, you may also want to know about. One is the Oracle Gathering that will take place near Randall, Washington from July 31st through August 2nd. I'll be speaking at that gathering, and uh, you can find more about it on the web at Oracle Gatherings, O-R-A-C-L-E-G-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And uh, I've already spoken with uh, several saloners who are going to be there, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, meeting quite a few of you. Also, there is uh, another festival that's going to take place in September uh, just shortly after Burning Man. 
And uh, that event is the fourth symbiosis gathering that will be held from September 17th through the 21st. Now, I'm not sure yet whether I'm going to be able to uh, make it there myself, but I am hoping to, uh, because in addition to some terrific music talent that will be creating some interesting soundscapes for us, there are also going to be talks and workshops by uh, quite a few interesting people, including Allison and Alex Gray, Starhawk, Daniel Pinchbeck, and uh, the author of The Tao of Physics, Freehoff Copra. So uh, you might want to check that one out, too. And I'll put links to uh, both of those events uh, along with the program notes for this podcast, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And I'll also try to uh, remember to post a link there to uh, some more Burning Man information that uh, any first-timers should most definitely take a look at. Well, that should do it for now, and uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, should you want to download a copy of my new novel in audiobook format, just go to genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.